This is Mint Day Magazine for Thursday, June 8th. I'm Shelby Herbert. Petersburg's emergency personnel responded to a remote area yesterday morning after receiving an emergency call at approximately 8 a.m. They were told that a man in his mid-50s was experiencing stroke symptoms at Blind River Rapids, a salmon fishing area about 14 miles south of town. The Petersburg Police Department dispatched fire department and EMS personnel to mile 14 on Metcalf Highway. They found the, fa- the patient stuck on a small island, which was across a creek at the base of the main trail, or about a quarter mile away from the parking lot. Petersburg Volunteer Fire Department spokesperson Dave Berg says the area was too remote for them to reach the patient. So the group sent out five members of Petersburg's search and rescue team to bring the man to safety. And then and about five people uh, actually assisted him to roll him back across uh, the riverbed and to the waiting stretcher. After they loaded the patient into a rolling stretcher, search and rescue had to wade through fast-moving water that went up to their knees. Berg says the team was lucky they arrived during low tide. Otherwise, they may have needed to call in a helicopter. The patient was then transported up the Blind River Rapids boardwalk to the ambulance and driven to the Petersburg Medical Center. The Petersburg Police Department received the call for help by phone. But Berg wants to remind the public that there's another way to get help when your phone can't lock on a cell tower. Communication is pretty difficult out there, but I would remind people that if you're in a difficult situation and you don't have communication available, at least uh, with your cell phone, it is possible to communicate with 911 dispatch by texting 911. And oftentimes a text will go through when a call won't go through. Berg thanks all the volunteers who came out to help on a moment's notice and extends his thanks to their employers who allow them to leave work when there's an emergency. He also says the fire hall is always looking for volunteers. More than $2.5 billion in federal funding is heading to coastal communities across the country to prepare for environmental and economic disruptions caused by climate change. U.S. Secretary of Commerce Gina Raimondo called the funding the most significant direct investment in climate resilience in the nation's history in a department announcement on Tuesday. The money was included in the Federal Inflation Reduction Act, which was passed by Congress last year. It'll be distributed by the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. The bulk of the money, nearly $600 million worth, will go towards a new grant program for projects aimed at climate resiliency in coastal communities. NOAA says it'll announce more details about how that program will work this summer. Almost $400 million will be earmarked specifically for tribes. NOAA consulted with nearly four dozen tribes and native corporations to outline priorities needing a funding boost, like habitat restoration, protecting salmon populations, and better research and monitoring programs. And about $350 million are aimed at what NOAA calls supporting climate-ready fisheries. The money will be distributed nationally. Tuesday's announcement didn't indicate how those funds might shake out regionally or for Alaska, which has more coastline than the entire lower 48. Both Alaska's senators voted against the Inflation Reduction Act back in 2022, saying at the time it would add to billions of dollars of spending and new taxes. Alaska's lone U.S. House seat was empty at the time of the vote.
pouring rain didn't stop a special ceremony honoring a one-of-a-kind canoe last week. Tribal members and Ketchikan residents gathered to awaken and launch a canoe designed by a late master carver and artist who called Ketchikan one of his homes. As Reagan Miller reports, it was a joyous occasion full of tradition. Dozens of people shout in the Haida language as they heave together, carrying the canoe to the water. The canoe has a fiberglass hole with wood underneath and is painted red, white, and black. A design of running salmon swirls around the canoe. When someone gets tired, another steps in. It's a show of teamwork and of strength. So of all the people that are going to be holding the canoe, if anything feels unsafe or unsturdy, make sure you yell it out so everybody knows so we can fix it. Earlier in the afternoon, a big crowd of tribal members and Ketchikan residents had gathered for an awakening ceremony. The canoe was designed by the late Marvin Oliver. Oliver owned Alaska Eagle Arts in downtown Ketchikan, but also had art installations around the world. He was a professor and a curator and had won an award for his work in diversity. Canoes run in the family. Oliver's father created the paddle to Seattle. Several speakers shared their thoughts during the awakening part of the ceremony before the launching. They include Ketchikan Indian community staff and tribal members and Oliver's family. His wife, Bridget Ellis, stands in front of her husband's creation alongside her family. She talks about respecting the canoe's place in indigenous culture. First thing I want to share with you is you never say the B word, okay? It's spelled B-O-A-T, but we don't say the B word. In traditional canoe culture, the canoe is always a canoe and never the B word. It is said if a paddler speaks of the vessel as a B word, that paddler will be thrown into the water. You learn really fast to call it a canoe at all times. She says that Oliver felt connected to canoes because of his father's role in the paddle to Seattle and his Salish heritage. The canoe revitalization will empower the youth. That's what he and I had in mind to carry these important traditions forward. It's the canoe that fosters a healthy sense of identity among young indigenous people. Those youth that struggle emotionally come together and say canoe culture is a life-changing event. Oliver died in 2019, but the year before, the tribe's council bought the canoe. Tribe leaders say that the canoe and canoe journeys will advance the tribe's strategic plan, which focuses on uniting the community and spreading culture. Norman Scan is the Ketchikan Indian community president. We already have our dance, we have our arts, we have our subsistence food, and this is just another component of the wholeness that we are slowly becoming. The canoe also receives its name. Brothers Richard and Willie Jackson named the canoe Hoots Kayak, or Brown Bear Spirit. Willie Jackson explains their choice. He is your protector on this canoe. You guys ready? Hoots Kayak! A little louder. Hoots Kayak! A little louder. Hoots Kayak! Hoots Kayak! 
before the canoe is carried into the water, there is drumming, singing, and an acknowledgement of the indigenous people who have lived on the land since time immemorial. Adults lift up children and help them drape cedar boughs on the canoe. After the canoe is floating, the mood is joyous. They are dancing and singing. Some wear cedar hats and drum, and others dance in their soggy jeans and sneakers. In a Ketchikan, I'm Reagan Miller. Wrangell's Museum is auctioning off a few items from its collection, partly due to shifting storage space. As Sage Smiley reports, museum staff say they hope that collectors might want to own a piece of Wrangell history that the museum can no longer store. The basement of Wrangell's community gym has lived many lives. A locker room, an art space, a temporary town museum. Nowadays, it's storage for all sorts of Wrangell Borough treasures. There's a locked room with the local government's archives. One corner holds a couple of boat motors from the 1940s and 50s. The main room is packed with decommissioned weight and cardio equipment, a baby grand piano, chemicals for the pool, and items from the Wrangell Museum's collection that couldn't fit anywhere else. Parks and Rec Director Lucy Moline Robinson is trying to clean up the jumble. This was a space that was essentially a catch-all, and just we were dumping everything that was no longer being used in this space. After being Wrangell's recreation coordinator for five years, Robinson moved into the director position earlier this year. When I first started this project and wanted to really uh, dig into this project, I thought, well, I better call Cindy. Cindy Crary is the director of the Nolan Center, which hosts Wrangell's Museum, in addition to the movie theater, gift shop, and a multi-purpose event space. Because these are things that I don't have, I don't know about, and I certainly don't want to put up for surplus if they should be in a museum somewhere, um, or if there is some sort of system that they need to go through. Over the last month or so, Crary and the museum's collections manager have worked to catalog and make decisions about what items from the old gym's basement the museum can realistically keep. It's really important that we consider who donated the item and just make sure that we've checked and rechecked, you know, to make sure that uh, we don't want to get rid of something that is of great value to somebody. She says that decision is multifaceted. Some items are more historically significant. Sometimes there are redundancies and the museum possesses multiples of the same items. Sometimes they have to simply decide which items are more important than others. Tyler Eagle is the collections manager for the Wrangell Museum. You do have to come at things with kind of an objective, almost cynical eye. Uh, You can't get too terribly attached because you do have to make some decisions. Almost 50 items are being auctioned off on the borough's public surplus site, including the two old boat motors, a grocery scale, book presses, murals from the Wrangell Institute, chairs, and a foghorn. Crary says that's not many compared to what the Nolan Center is keeping. We're trying to make room, find some spots in the gallery where things are appropriate, like for instance, um, there were some lanterns from the that used to be hanging at the Wrangell Institute. And so we decided to retrieve those and we're gonna add them to the gallery in our um, institute section. Eagle, the collections manager, says he hopes local or regional collectors will see the value in taking on pieces of Wrangell history that are up for auction. Ultimately disposing of the object is kind of, you know, complete last resort there. We're looking to we're looking into possibly getting these in the hands of private collectors. Even when the auction ends, Eagle says he hopes to try and rehome items rather than getting rid of them altogether. If these things, you know, don't sell, I think we kinda wanna get them into the hands of 
you know, real people rather than the uh, rather than the dumpster. Although Wrangell Museum collection items might be leaving the basement of the old gym, it's not without its own history. The building has been central to Wrangell since the early 1950s. Robinson, the Parks and Rec director, says she wants to honor that history as she works to revitalize the space as a more functional community center. I want to dig into the history of, of the community center, the old gym, and essentially the high school and the activities that used to go on here. My dream is to dedicate this gym to athletes past, present, and future. The Wrangell Museum is slowly adding items to the borough's public surplus site. Some of the first items are set to close to bidding as early as June 7th. You, too, could own a Wrangell Foghorn. In Wrangell, I'm Sage Smiley. The Sika Music Festival kicked off its 2023 season with an informal concert last Wednesday. Artistic director Zul Bailey, joined by members of Miami's New World Symphony, played pieces ranging from Mozart to Frederick Tillis for an audience at a local pizza joint. As Meredith Reddick reports, the, 50, the 52nd season promises a month of chamber music in venues across Sitka. Illuminated by a green spotlight on the dimly lit stage of the Mean Queen, cellist and festival artistic director Zul Bailey tells the story of his new bow to an audience of Sitkins eating pizza and wings. This bow was built, or the, the maker lived during Beethoven's lifetime. So it's spectacular man, and made by a man named um, the Grand Adam. With that, he launches into Bach's first cello suite. The Sitka Music Festival is celebrating its 52nd year. The festival brings performers to the island for four weeks of chamber music performances. These range from formal concerts to pieces played from the porch of Stevenson Hall on the former Sheldon Jackson campus. After the cello suite, four musicians from Miami's New World Symphony take the stage to perform a sampling of what audiences can expect from the rest of the festival. Just kind of a, a tapas menu. Uh, musically speaking, of the things to come. It's to, to get people sonically ready for all the wonderful things that we will have over the weekend. On the menu tonight, in addition to Beethoven and Mozart, the quartet offers up pieces from Argentinian composer Astor Piazzolla and American composer Frederick Tillis. Violinist Christina Choi introduces the Tillis piece, Spiritual Fantasy Number no. 12, which incorporates elements of folk, jazz, and gospel. It's rhythmically very driving. It's good practice for us in counting to seven, which is harder than you might think. <laughs> and it's a groovy little thing, so we hope you enjoy it. The quartet, which also includes violinist Ming Lung Lu, violist Kamala Berg, and cellist David Olson, will play together throughout the festival. The Wednesday night concert launched a lineup of performances that will go through the month of June in Sitka. In addition to weekly informal concerts, there are larger formal concerts each weekend. There's also a classical brunch, a family concert, a cruise, and a crab feed on the docket. Reporting in Sitka, I'm Meredith Reddick. For KFSK News, I'm Shelby Herbert.